Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. For August 21st, 2022 I'm your host, David McLaughlin Welcome as always Welcome back, Catherine Smith Greetings from Atlanta And welcome Tim Shiflett Good evening, sir All right, excited about tonight's show We're going to have on for the second time From Race to the WH I'll let you guess what that um, stands for Being we're talking about American politics Logan Phillips is going to come on. There are so many races that their prediction uh, tool has talked about, both the governor's races, Senate races, and we're going to cover as many as we can get to with Logan. Also, with NFL season starting, they have launched a new um, NFL prediction tool. Uh, Who's going to be in the Super Bowl, playoffs, number of wins. And we're going to spend a little bit of time with Logan on that as well. But until then... Um, We're going to start off where Tim and I talked about early in the show, and I think later too, and that would be um, the uh, search and seizure at Mar-a-Lago that the FBI conducted now, I guess, closer to 14 days ago. But Catherine didn't get to speak on it, so we're going to start off, and Catherine, getting your thoughts um, of that really big event. Well, it was – it's certainly exciting to see uh, the FBA finally, you know, coming in there and, you know, pulling those, pulling, you know, with the subpoena and search warrants and everything. I just hope that something comes of it. Um, I, I'm always worried that it's just going to be a lot of, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of, activity but nothing comes of it and then everybody's going to be like see there really wasn't anything and so i'm just keeping my fingers crossed that with all the boxes they removed that they're going to find something uh telling that they can go after him with so that he can't run for president that's my uh that's my wish well, well, let's move into the political calculations of this pretty quickly because to me that is pretty important. Um, you know, at first we didn't know why the FBI, you know, came into Mar-a-Lago. We find out late in the week that it was nuclear inform- nuclear code or nuclear um, capability information, and they had to get that back, obviously, because that's just not stuff you, you know, get to take home as a parting gift after you've been president. And that seemingly didn't move a lot of Republican voters off of him. They kept making excuses for him, Catherine. So uh, my question is, how surprised were you that Republicans just are like, well, you know, that's normal behavior, you know, for a president, and in this case, Donald Trump? I wasn't surprised by it at all. Uh, I think, you know, we've gotten to the point where they, you know, try to find excuses for everything that he does. Uh, it doesn't surprise me at all. You know, they they admire him and uh, want him to succeed, and so they seem to be able to ignore what, what appear to be very serious uh, concerns about the information that he... Uh, had that he removed from the White House, so I, I'm not surprised by it. Yes, and Tim, I'm gonna come to you for a question real quick on this. There hasn't been a lot of attention paid in the same way. Is it because there's not any new information because they did the search, the seizure, they took the documents, and then of course we saw the Republicans' reaction. 
and we're kind of in a holding pattern? Or is it this is the new cycle we're in, and no matter how colossal something is, we're just on to the next thing? Well, it's the era of Trump. No one is surprised, really, because it was Donald Trump that that did it. And number two, Trump and his side are doing most of the talking and filling in most of the blanks because those doing the investigating obviously are conducting an investigation. They don't want to uh, get out there and talk about it. Uh, they they don't want to release documents and stuff about it they you know that that's what they do in the normal course of an investigation and trump of course has jumped on it and and uh spun his own narrative of things as as they happen but to the average american they just shrug their shoulders because again it's donald trump doing this uh over and over and over and over and over and over again for the last seven years. You can't take a breath between things that he does. Each one seems to be more sensational that the, uh, uh, than, than the previous thing. But I just wonder if the American people's senses have not somehow been deadened uh, by this just proliferation of things that, that he's done and, and seemingly gotten away with. Yes, and it seems like we have moved on. I mean, and let's talk about us moving on because, you know, we did discuss this in length last week, and we wanted to have Catherine's thoughts on it. But seemingly one of the biggest stories of the political week was Dr. Oz just being made a fool of on Twitter all week, and part of it was a video (laughs) where he went to buy vegetables and just clowned himself. Now, obviously, that's super, super trivial compared to somebody taking nuclear information out of the White House, but that's where we're at, and that's what we're going to talk about next Um, because it is a race that could um, either expand the Democratic majority or help preserve the 50-50 balance um, depending on what goes where. We'll talk to Logan about that a little bit later. Um, with a lot of different races, but let's start in Pennsylvania. It's it's really, I think, gotten more attention than any other Senate race this year. And early in the week, um, a, a video I think Dr. Oz actually did around in May, he um, went to a supermarket and just cut this random video where he got the grocery store name wrong, which apparently is a Pennsylvania institution, Um, I feel like if I tried to say the name, I might get it wrong, but I don't live in Pennsylvania or New Jersey, for that matter. Um, I mean, I even know that the the Piggly Wiggly and the IGA are over in Cedar Bluff, even though I don't live in Alabama. Um, But he makes this video. He just has all this random stuff that really doesn't fit together. He calls this what most people call vegetable trade America, crudités, which apparently is a, a French a uh, variation of this, which, hey, I learned something new, um, even following politics. And so I've kind of got the setup of this video. I feel like I've forgotten still three details of this this just, oh, nonsensical event. Um, Catherine, I'm sure you've seen the video. I'm sure you've seen the reaction. Tell us what's going Well, it, it, it reminded me of, um, I think it was when, George W. Bush, no, when George Bush Sr. was president, or maybe it was George W. Bush, one of them went to the grocery was store, the first, I think. and they had the self-checkout, and they were, like, totally befuddled by it. And I just think it's further evidence of the, like, distance, you know, someone who's as wealthy and um, – and you know who's as wealthy and uh probably well supported by administer by assistance how distanced they are from the ordinary american experience of going to the grocery store and buying a you know vegetable tray to take to the cookout or to take to work for you know potluck lunch or whatever um now, I knew what crudite was. I, maybe it's because I 
maybe it's because I'm a foodie. I don't know what. But I just thought the whole thing was um, was just further evidence of how disconnected he was from the people. And I think it was particularly it's particularly um, important or topical because I think we all believe that Fetterman is very connected to the people and knows, you know, what it's like to be working class. So I think it really, um, really uh, was a pronounced uh, difference between the two candidates. So, I mean, I think it was good for Fetterman. Yeah. um, uh, One thing I I didn't mention earlier that was probably a key point in talking about, you know, not going to the grocery store and, um, you know, not understanding it or just being disingenuous. And we really don't know. And this to me was something that wasn't paid enough attention to when he picks up the salsa. And obviously who puts salsa on like carrots and asparagus is a dip. That's weird enough, but he grabs it and he talks about the price being so high, but it was pointed out the salsa price is far to the left. And then the, um, Salsa went over a little bit, and then the next item started, and he read out the price for the next item, which is typically more expensive than salsa. So either A, he was disingenuous, or B, he just didn't know how to find prices at the grocery store. And if you live like most of us, you want to pay the right price. You want to pay the most affordable price for the product you want, so you're very aware of prices if you go to the grocery store, even – you know, on a biweekly basis. Um, Tim, I'm, once again, I know you saw the video, and, and I know you cook a lot too, so you probably do a lot of grocery shopping. What's your thoughts on all of this? Well, I, I, I am going to admit, though, I, I had to Google crudite. And when I saw it, I said, oh, veggie platter. Okay. <laughs> uh, and that's what the average person in this country probably exactly. did. Yeah. And that's what the average voter in Pennsylvania did, and that's what uh, Fetterman did in his reply video brilliantly by holding up, you guessed it, a veggie platter, a a packaged veggie platter. Uh, This thing was totally panned. You you know you're doing the wrong thing if late-night comedians and stuff like that are, are making jokes about it. Catherine's right to the average person. He looks like an out-of-touch, rich guy. And to make matters worse, he doubled down and tried to defend it since it's happened. Instead of letting it die down, as a result, that gave it more news cycles, which made him look uh, that much worse. Um, that, That was just... There was just nothing good to be said uh, uh, about this uh, for for Dr. Oz. It's just the latest in a series of, of mishaps that are just – his campaign really has never gotten off the ground since the primary, and this is, this is uh, another example of that. Man, he got rolled yeah, on I Twitter. It, there was, like, endless – endless uh jokes about it on twitter it was hilarious. oh yeah oh yeah yeah i mean and even a baseball team up in Reading, pennsylvania had a crudite race and you would think a minor league baseball team would want to be you know apolitical but i mean in this case i'm sure it's not like oh we're endorsing john fetterman it was just like can you believe how goofy Dr. Oz was when he did that. We just have to have fun yeah. at it. And, and that shows yeah, we got to get in all the fun. <laughs> yeah, and, and um, another thing well, that and even Wegmans, goes to a deeper... Even Wegmans came on and said, um, you know, we have crudite platters already... Uh, we have veggie trays already made up with salsa. And here, you know, because he was, like, grabbing vegetables, like, that's the way you, you know get a veggie platter at a grocery store, but we all know that you go to the deli area and pick up one that's already put together. Right. And then then asparagus, who eats raw asparagus? Yeah, I mean, he had Bugs Bunny-sized carrots, um, you know, instead of baby carrots, that even a novice uh, to grocery shopping (laughs) and vegetables probably knows baby carrots. But let's get into, I think, a deeper point that this cuts into. 
I've been listening to, uh, I guess about a year ago, Thomas Frank came out with the People Know, and that was N-O. And it talked about the way populism will kind of switch between Democrats and Republicans. And there's always the people that are like educated and moneyed and I guess the elites. And then there's the populace, and at times it will switch. He talks a lot of this, about this and um, uh, what's the matter of Kansas as well. And we're in a moment in which the elites, the educated and sometimes moneyed, which, yeah, it's talked to the three of us, are, are people that are Democrats, people that are progressives. But what this gets to is Dr. Oz seems like the out-of-touch elite, even though he's the conservative candidate, and then the guy in Carhartt and hoodies and gym shorts is the everyman, and he's the progressive. So it switches that progressive, populist um, you know, frame that we have now on its head, and that may really throw the dynamic off to where Dr. Oz loses out on voters that Republicans have gotten in Pennsylvania in the past cycle or two. And I don't mean you know big swaths, but 10, 15 percent of those voters. Tim, did you yeah, kind of know that. that. It, it, it's right. worse than that in this case. It's not just out-of-touch elites. It's out-of-state elites. Everything yeah. that this guy is doing, every move he is making, is making voters say, wait a minute, you know, that, that guy ain't from around here, is he? And, and and that is the last thing that Dr. Oz wants to be reminding voters of. It's bad enough that he's reminding them in other ways, but with a commercial like this, oh, come on, it's like pouring salt in a, in a wound. But that out-of-state elite thing is just wiping him out. And frankly, I don't know how he answers that. He he bought a house over in Pennsylvania. I heard a pundit mention it today, and there's not been one sighting of him anywhere near that house. I, I mean, come on. Good. Grief. Well, and let's get it. Tim, you bring us into the houses. This is later in the week. There's a clip, and mm-hmm. it says he has two houses. And it comes mm-hmm. to find out that he actually has ten houses but then he also has some other properties, and so he has 10 what we might call homes, and he talks about, oh, he rents them out. And he acted like he rented them like he rent a place, but he rents them out like he's the landlord. And so this just turns out to a mess and that he doesn't know – either A, he doesn't know how many homes he owns, or B, he's not being honest about it. Either way, a bad look. Catherine, your thoughts on – the you know monopoly got thrown at him on these memes. Uh, you know having ten plus properties when he only said he had two. Yeah, that was a big, uh, that was a big goof. Like there's there's nothing wrong with having rental properties. It's actually a pretty common um, way for people to build wealth, um, especially uh, when we have these. Home prices that go up and down over the course of uh, time, you know, it's not unusual. Um, but to lie, to, to either lie about it or just not be aware of it, um, is a you know big red flag for people who want someone who's you know understands their circumstances. And I think that again is just more fuel for his, um, like Tim said, out of, you know, not from there and also disconnected from, uh, you know, your average American. Yeah. Uh, Tim, um, you know, it it just was such a, um, you know, problem when he said that. But I kind of want to move into something else, but you can talk about the 10 homes as well. Then he attacks John Fetterman for buying his house in Braddock, Pennsylvania, which was a, a community that was a, very much in economic troubles um, 10, 15 years ago. It, it may not be a show place now, but it's coming back. He bought it for a dollar. And so Dr. Oz makes this strange attack for John Fetterman buying a home for a dollar. Um, Dr. Oz, with the home, the home uh, 
phase of the campaign. What do you make of it? Well, again, that's probably this home stuff is something he should let go. First, he tells yeah. his journalists he has two homes when he has ten. Fetterman already jumped over, all over that well, one by again, saying, you know, I had a heckle yeah, going and, and there I for think, a second. I think uh, we're about to bring somebody on speakerphone, so keep talking, Tim. Finish your thoughts. I was just going to say, you know, he told the journalist that he had 10 homes or, or two homes. He has 10. Fetterman jumps all over it with the, uh, you know, how can anyone forget that he has 10 mansions and, and says he only has two mansions? I'm going to stop there, David, if you're bringing someone on. Yes. Uh, well, and that's that technical magic and faux pas we um, bounce between. But I want to welcome back to the show for the second time to the Kazoovine for race, from race to the WH, Mr. Logan Phillips. Welcome, Logan. Hey, great to be on with you guys again. How are you guys doing? I'm doing good. Good. You Thanks for being on. Yeah. Well, Logan, um, we're gonna. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about politics, and then I'm going to talk to you about the new feature, and then Tim, Catherine, and Tim are going to cover all kinds of political races. But the one I wanted to ask about was the real shock poll of the week for me. Man, I've been for you, but I've been seeing and sensing that Ron Johnson, he's not out of the woods, but he seems safe. And Mandela Barnes kind of had a – or whomever the Democratic nominee would have been, because I thought this back even when it was four candidates in the race, was going to have a tough uphill climb. Um, knocking off Ron Johnson. That still may be the case, but this past week we kind of got a shock poll that showed Mandela Barnes in the lead. If I'm not mistaken, he actually was doing better than Tony Evers running for re-election in Wisconsin. Uh, you may know more about that poll and that pollster, but give us your thoughts on the Wisconsin race. Hey, that was a great one to choose, and that is definitely the poll that stood out to me. I uh... Wisconsin's one I've been more skeptical than uh, some about Dems' chances. Um, there were always a lot of potential there, right, because Ron Johnson's approval ratings had fallen very low. Before, you know, whenever he was sure or not, he always styled himself as a, as a businessman that was above the political fray, and he had gone hard and core becoming one of the most partisan lawyers on the other side of the aisle in the last six years. And so maybe Democrats had a shot, but this is a state that is more Republican than it is Democrat. Uh, relative to the national popular vote. Johnson keeps overperforming expectations, and uh, Barnes wasn't raising that much money compared to most of the Democrats who are doing great in fundraising. And so, yeah, I was skeptical too. But now I think you have to say it's a toss-up race. Um, you can't always trust polling in Wisconsin, even though this is a great poll. Uh, it's been off by like five and a half points on average against Republicans since 2016. Um, but Democrats definitely have a shot. And uh, you know, now there's an opportunity here for Dems so they can keep the national popular vote close so they can survive in Arizona, Nevada, and Georgia, and New Hampshire to even pick up two seats maybe between Pennsylvania uh, and, and Wisconsin. And, and for all the reasons you guys were talking about earlier, Pennsylvania, that's their best bet by far. But uh, Wisconsin is very seriously in play. Uh, it's definitely one that Barnes can win. Yes. Now, um, I guess there wasn't a lot of polling about it until the primary so cleared was part of the problem. But then also we have the Dobbs decision, and Wisconsin kind of seems like a state where, you know, Milwaukee and Madison have to turn out, and those seem like areas where that ruling would really help generate turnout. Um, from what you may glean through the, from the cross tabs or what you know or have heard, um, how much is that ruling impacting this race? I think that ruling has impacted things a lot. I mean – and again, I always take Wisconsin polling with a grain of salt in a way I do with no other state. Uh, but we have seen that like people are not sold on Johnson in a way that they weren't in past cycles. So there was some underbelly there, but they had to decide that the Democrat was a worthy alternative, and you wanted these same voters to a vote, b hold not be holding their nose and voting for Johnson as a check to Biden if if you want Barnes to win. And so the abortion issue has made. For a lot of those Biden-Trump voters, that's a reason to stick around, right, because a lot of them are mad at 
are, are, are mad at Republicans for this. Um, and when you combine that with some of the, you know, Jan 6, which has gotten much bigger focus lately, um, gun control, um, and some of Johnson's actions on January 6th, too. Uh, yeah, I think you're going to see people cross over. So, so to me, you know, I'd say Johnson's a light favorite, but maybe we're talking a 60% chance as opposed to what I would have said a few weeks ago, a 75% chance. So this is now a very hot race, in my view. Yes. Well, I mean, I could ask you so many more questions, but we've talked about it pre-show, and I know you're excited about um, the new tool you've added to uh, race to the WH. And that is your NFL prediction tool. It has, um, I guess, all the way through the Super Bowl. Why don't you first kind of tell us about it, what it can do, what it can't do, uh, maybe some of the math, you know, you know, behind it a bit, and, and just give us an overview. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, letting me talk about it. So, what it is is it's basically a forecast for the NFL. So this is my second time branching into sports. I did it with the MLB forecasts. Um, as well. And so for the NFL forecast, it uses a few different pieces of data uh, to determine how strong each team would be on paper, and then it uses those ratings to stimulate the season. So I'm looking at a combination of point differential both this season and last. Obviously, at this point, it's just last. Uh, I'm using Vegas odds, uh, this data point that ESPN uses to rate the overall strength of teams um, that changes after each game. Uh, and so all of those combined to get um, an overall view of the team and the biggest part's important so it can respond to injuries. And then I go through the season, um, simulating it a few thousand times a day, and uh, that's used to update the results. And then uh, the additional part, which is really fun, I think, is the race to the Super Bowl feature, which goes through every single day a playoff simulation going through each game, and you can watch it as it's going uh, through each game, as it has a point total for each quarter, and it's kind of fun and exciting to watch. Yes. Now, um, I, I looked through it, and um, one thing that stood out to me, I think it also stood out to Tim, is you give the Dallas Cowboys the third best chance <laughs> to be Super Bowl champs. Now, Dallas has not won a playoff game since – um, Barry Switzer left town, um, and I'm not giving him a ton of credit. It's more of Jimmy Johnson. Since Troy Aikman, Michael Irvin, Deion Sanders, Emmett Smith all left the team. Um, why is the model so bullish on the Cowboys based on 20, a 25-year track record? <laughs> well, I'll tell you this much. Uh, I think this is good evidence of my commitment to uh, keeping my forecast both political and sports and biased because I'm a New York Giants fan, and it pains me greatly. <laughs> uh, to publish that result. Uh, I think those are great reasons for skepticism. Um, those are the types of things that don't come in statistical models as much uh, because you're not, you don't usually rate teams under performances. Um, I think fair enough to be skeptical of it for that reason. The Cowboys could definitely underperform. Uh, and, you know, everyone has, everything looks great when you start the season sometimes. It looks strong on paper, but uh, things can easily change. I mean, part of it is that they're in a weaker division, so they have a clearer path to the playoffs than um, most teams, and that's going to just give them a better shot at getting a little higher seed. Um, and, you know, that's going to have less of an effect once the season gets going um, because we'll have other teams that are standouts as well, and so you might see their chance of winning the Super Bowl drop down in a few games. Yes. Another one that stood out to me, last year the Rams and the Bengals played for the Super Bowl title. Now, the, the Bengals were definitely a Cinderella team, but they are returning an undeniable winner in Joe Burrow. And they have a 1% chance. And to the north, the Cleveland Browns also have a 1% chance. And the Cleveland Browns, all they pretty much did in the offseason was sign the NFL's most controversial player now, who is going to be suspended for 11 games. Um, how do they end up with the same um, – a uh, chance of reaching the Super Bowl, or does the model not take into effect and uh, into um, in effect uh, Deshaun Watson's suspension? Uh, you know that's a really good question. Um, some of this is going to get a little bit crisper once we have some more results in the season. Uh, 
Vegas odds have been a little slow in responding to that part, and that's usually the, the, the portion of my forecast that will adjust best to injuries um, or to suspensions. Uh, and the views of the Browns have not been adjusted too much. I wouldn't be surprised if that changes in a few days. And I'll be updating the model every I day. So, uh, we might. Yeah, and, and so you told me something. So after the first week, the, it'll become a much clearer picture. So what you're telling me is when I go down to Mercedes-Benz Stadium and I see the Falcons upset the New Orleans Saints in the home opener, the Falcons are going to have better odds of winning uh, more than 3.7 games, which is second worst in the NFL, if not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, I feel I feel bad about that. Uh, same for my New York Giants. They're not very high on that rating. Um, but, uh, you know, there are plenty of teams that overperform these types of projections. Uh, the Bengals, I think, had a 1% chance in some of these NFL models of making the Super Bowl even when the playoffs started. And that's the great thing about sports, right? Uh, there are – we can make – informed predictions based off of data and qualitative info. Uh, but you'll see crazy things happen all the time. And uh, that's kind of why we watch, right? Yes. And one final question, just trying to get, a, get an idea if, you know, player movement impacts a lot. I noticed the Colts have a 3% chance, which puts them, um, you know, in the top quarter of the league. I was surprised that that ties them with the Broncos. But the other teams up there with them are all solid franchises. They picked up Matt Ryan. You put him with a good defense and probably maybe the best running back he's played with at least since Michael Turner, if not ever. Um, and so he is the best play-action um, quarterback statistically in the past, say, 10, 15 years. Um, did the Colts' chances – did you get the idea from the model that they jumped because of that offseason addition? Yeah, definitely. Um, and – you know, they're a really interesting, exciting team. And uh, they're doing uh, – I think if we have some evidence in the first few games, if they're scoring, you know, both not just winning these games, but also um, outperforming expectations and scoring a lot of points, then uh, you're going to see their projection go up a lot as well. All right. One so, final question. Yeah, so, so, so I, would say, I would say just to have a further – yeah, just, just, to, just to add us a little further on that. I would say the way this model kind of works, right, is it is taking a ton of data from last season – and it's taking about 60% of it would be adjusted, would be reacting to these changes uh, from the Vegas odds. Um, and a lot of the stuff is heavier built in last year, which is often very useful for predicting how a team will do next year, right? But it's just the downside of these models versus, um, let's say, articles that are built on analysis is picking teams that are set to overperform expectations due to changes in either personnel or strategy. And so – Look, these are great points about areas where it is probably we're going to find out underestimating these teams. Um, and, you know, you always have to look at, I think when you're, when you're looking at things like that, you're trying to good read where the season's going. You want to include the qualitative data to get a better read, and that's just where my model's going to fall short on some areas. Yep. One final question. It's actually not about the model, but you keep mentioning that you're a big Giants fan. Daniel Jones, are you pro or con on his NFL future? Uh, I am Unlike most New York sports fans, <laughs> I try to give my players the benefit of the doubt. So I'm going to stay pro, even though uh, last year was a little bit lacking. But we'll see how he does. Hoping he does better this year. All right. Well, that, that, that's very fair. And I tell you what, I'm excited to have you on, of course, to talk about more politics in the future. But maybe as the season progresses, this model is going to really get sharper and more interesting from what you're saying. And then that will be a fair chance to – uh, have a have a way to um, discuss it, so we'll look forward to that. But I'm going to pass it to Catherine about more politics, and she'll pass it to Tim. Catherine, I'm glad you pay, I'm glad you ended that because I was I, my brain was starting to trail off. Oh, they're still talking about football. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just not. I just don't get it. But I'm glad y'all <laughs> are enjoying it. Um, I have two states I wanted to ask you about. First of all, we can't, you know, we can't get off the phone without talking about Georgia. You know, this Senate race and the governor's race are so tight. And um, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are about them. And also, um, you know, you, we mentioned the Dobbs decision and, you know, sort of the overall, you know, restrictions on abortion earlier but I, I and I think that is 
definitely having an impact on some of this polling, and hopefully it will have some impact in the election. But I also am thinking that the uh, January 6th hearings and the um, subpoena for records and then, you know, this unfolding of potential nuclear secrets and all this stuff with Trump are are all sort of contributing to that. And I just wondered what your thoughts were about that. Yeah, I think it matters a lot. I mean, most people aren't thinking about politics that much, or at least let's say the voters who are going to be changing the outcome of these elections year to year, the ones who don't always vote, right? This Dobbs ruling is so fundamentally important because now they have to contend with politics because for the first time, uh, at least in decades, we're seeing Americans deal with losing a right. Now, there are a lot of people who feel, you know, who, who are pro-life, who think that's the right thing to do, but I think they're now becoming the minority to a greater degree than they were because a lot of people who were pro-life were thinking, okay, I might not want abortions, but now that I'm actually seeing what would happen if we, if we criminalize it, right? Like, do I really yes. want to have the court or, 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 the, or the justice system say that when a girl is, is raped that, oh, she has to prove it in court now? Uh, or, or she can't have it at all, depending on the state. I mean, it's just too extreme for most people. And so I think now, like, their life's getting affected by politics. They're getting engaged. It's pulling back a lot of the Biden-Trump or Biden-Romney voters um, back to the Democratic Party who might have considered a check on Biden. And so I think it's made a huge difference. I really do. I, I do, too. And I think that um, all the stories that we're hearing now about these, you know, very young uh you know, teenagers and even younger. And then also the stories about uh, women who are miscarrying and their doctors are, uh, you know, getting legal advice before they're able to, you know, take care of their patients. I think that's another thing that, that we, I don't think anybody expected from this decision, but it's very, I work in the field, so I know um, how threatened, how threatened, doctors are feeling about all these criminal, um, you know, potential criminal things, not just for doctors, but also for call centers and, you know, people working in health centers. So um, anyway, so, and, and in that, how do you think that's going to, do you think that's going to have an impact on our governor's race here in Georgia and our Senate race? Uh, that's a really good question. I'm surprised it hasn't had more of one, to be honest, at least in the polling so far. Um, my personal theory as to why Kemp is doing so um, well, especially after the primary, is that I think the primary made him seem pre- come off as pretty reasonable. And so for voters that want to see themselves as swing voters that are checking both sides, they might be voting for Kemp and Warnock because, you know, in comparison to Purdue, even though Kemp you know, I, I, I try to be fair to both sides, but if we're being real, his voter, um, his attacks on voting rights were historic, one of the worst we've seen um, in, in, in since Jim Crow, just flat out was. And uh, yeah. that doesn't seem as extreme now if you're not paying a lot of attention because Purdue was trying to overthrow the whole election system and Kemp had stood up to Trump on that front. So it kind of gave him a pass. And even though he's been pretty conservative, I think a lot of voters might think of him as reasonable now. And so that's why I think Abrams is uh, trailing him, even though as Warnock is beating Walker right now. But the Warnock numbers are, the Warnock Walker numbers are tight still. True. I mean, yeah. it's uh, kind of hard to believe that people are willing to vote for Herschel Walker, but, uh, you know, we've not, I've never uh, been successful in predicting those things. <laughs> Okay, I also wanted to ask you about, even though it looks pretty good for Gretchen Whitmer, I'm just wondering if you think there's any uh, worry there. I'm originally from Michigan, so I like to keep things a little, you know, keep a, you know, yeah, well, I, I, you know up with that. I, I'd always say there's always a chance um, in a state like Michigan, but Whitmer couldn't be in a stronger position um, right now because – a, she was already had become pretty popular over time. You know, her whole promise was build, was to fix the damn roads, and the infrastructure bills done a lot to help her move on that goal. Uh, and her right. opponent is, as I'm sure you know, pretty radical, right? Tudor Dixon on abortion. 
uh, wants no exceptions at all, including for rape for 14-year-olds. And, you know, as, as, as you also might know, right, there's a law in the, 18, I think in the early 1900s, like 1910 or something along those lines, that was passed that struck that banned abortion in Michigan that now is going to go into effect. And, and this goes back into the thing about how a lot of voters aren't thinking about politics until it's right in their face. And now a law from 1910 that no one knew that the average Michigan had no idea was a thing is going to change the way their laws work, right? It's getting people fired up. And there's going to be a referendum on the ballot uh, to, to protect the right to abortion. It's going to, and Whitmer is putting a lot of her chips on, on that issue and trying to make it the central distinction of her opponent. And she's outraced her opponent by a tremendous uh, ratio, which means that she gets to control the narrative of the race. Yeah, so I, I mean, I wasn't too worried about it, but, you know, there's just no telling sometimes with what's going on. Well, that's all I have, so I'm going to pass it on to Tim. Thanks so much for being on the show. I really, we really appreciate it, even though you did talk a lot about something. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you. I know uh, the guys love thanks. that, so I, I'm fine with yeah, we Yeah, we, we did, Logan, and I want to give you one disclaimer. Uh, David tends to be a little delusional when it comes to the subject of the Falcons, but I want you to know I'm thinking about medicating him, and he'll be fine next time, y'all. <laughs> that, that, that being said, the state that's making me scratch my head is the state of Ohio. I believe by a bit over eight points in 2020, that state has been kicking Democrats all over the field uh, for 10 years, I suppose. How in the world is Tim Ryan ahead, uh, even though he's running against J.D. Vance? Or is that the reason he's ahead? Or is it a polling error? What in the world's going on in that Ohio Senate race? All good questions, and uh, skepticism of Ohio polling like Wisconsin is wise, because that is probably the other state we've seen some big misses. But I will say this at the very least. I do buy that J.D. Vance is outperforming what a generic Democrat would. I fully buy it. And I think it's for the very same reason you guys were discussing before I came on board about Fetterman versus Dr. Oz. Tim Ryan and Fetterman uh-huh. are running similar styles campaigns of kind of the uh-huh. reverse Donald Trump, framing their opponent as an outsider that's disconnected to what people care about, that's an elite that just decided they wanted to run for office and is in it for themselves. And he has done so expertly while also pushing on his working class or advocating for his working class blue collar bona fides, which has been Tim Ryan's bread and butter since the day he was in Congress. And so I think that's why he's ripe to overperform. And there's also all these data indicators that suggest that, again, I'm not going to say Ryan's going to win this. I think he's an underdog, but I think it's, I think it's a possibility at least. Um, He's out raising his opponent in something that I call individual donations, 19 to 1. And what that means are people that donate to campaigns, not PAC money, not self-funding, just individual donations. Out raising an opponent when you're supposed to be the underdog, 19 to 1 is almost unheard of. And that suggests mm. not only is Ryan going to have a lot more money, it suggests that Vance is running a subpar campaign that is a huge indicator that says someone's going to uh, underperform. It's usually the type of thing you see in North Dakota or a state that you don't expect to be in play. You don't see it in Ohio. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't be surprised if Ryan keeps this close. And while I would be surprised if he wins, I wouldn't be shocked. I think it's in play. All righty. Now I want to move across the country because just about three hours ago, you published uh, on Twitter a couple of polls of the Nevada Senate race. One, as you mentioned, leaning with a Democratic lean, one with a conservative lean. They have totally opposite results listed in these polls about who's ahead and by how much. Uh, How do you figure out which poll is right? Well, this is why I'm a big believer in polling averages, which uh, we do on our site, because you can't – individual polls are often going to be off. Um, But if you weigh them based off the track record of the pollster and corrects for bias, then I think you get a better read. And uh, mm-hmm. I think that points us to uh, Democrats being a little favored in Nevada. But I do think Democrats should be scared there more than any other state because this, this is a state that votes two points to the left of, or to the right of the, of the popular vote in most elections. Um, you don't have an opponent like Herschel Walker that's right to underperform because he's making mistakes all the time. 
Uh, and there's been some questions about Democrats and Latinos. I'm not saying they're going to lose it. I just think that if I think if the election were today, they'd probably win. But if the you know if Republicans regain some some points in the national environment, you could even see a split with this in PA. Nevada goes red, PA goes blue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So is Senator Cortez Masto, in your opinion, the most vulnerable incumbent Democratic senator this year? Definitely. On paper, I mean, I, I, I think so. I really do. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you know, it's a funny thing. Right next door is Arizona, literally on the border. And you just have different dynamics playing out in, in the two Senate races when earlier in the cycle – uh, Senator Kelly, by many, many, many pundits, was listed uh, as the most vulnerable Democrat. Why is he doing so much better than she is? I think there's a few reasons. One of which, the reason why the uh, Arizona Republican or Arizona has switched is that they're kind of turned off by the hard right social turn of Republicans in addition to population mm-hmm. changes. And Blake Masters kind of is a continuation of that. Uh, you know, he is making a hard pivot now to being more of a moderate, but he said a lot of extreme things in the primary. Um, he's a gifted communicator. So maybe I'm not going to rule him out here, um, but if the election were today, I, I'd be stunned if he won because Kelly with his fundraising advantage and his polling advantage really seems to differentiate himself. And, and also, honestly, Kelly's one of the best candidates Dems have, uh, like Raphael Warren. He has a great apolitical brand, um, and he has managed to uh, separate himself from the party mm-hmm. in his identity. Okay. Now, now I want to jump from the southwest over to the Midlands because you've also recently written uh, at length about this. We we know what Kansas did on primary night with the abortion issue, uh, but that's not the general election. And and Sharice Davids is someone you've written a lot about, and that's that's good because she has she has a great personal story. But I gotta ask: Has redistricting possibly doomed her chance for reelection? How does her race look? It certainly made it harder. Uh, she is done well enough in the last cycle that I wouldn't count her out. Um, okay, I'm, I'm looking at my projection right now. So that, with all the races sometimes, I will admit, I lose track of some of these house races, um, even though Sharice Davis as an individual is someone I follow well, because you're right. Very interesting story. For those, for those that don't know, one of the first two Native American women in congressional history, uh, former, mm-hmm. former fighter who then, who then uh, ran for Congress and won. So, I have her now as uh, a toss-up race. I actually have her favored right now by 1% chance, uh, projected margin. And uh, I think her district was moved about two or three points to the right. So this wasn't like the Florida-style brutal gerrymandering or Georgia brutal gerrymandering or New Jersey. Like, they clipped, moved it a little bit, but it's not bad enough that she's out of this race. Um, her district still is, I think, like around four points to the right of the center. Um, I could be wrong. And, uh, you know, she's been able to raise a fair amount of money. Um, and if this abortion uh, vote was a sign of Democratic energy, then, you know, they're, they don't need to overperform that much for her to be able to win. Um, I think the, the, the biggest question to me is for the governor race in Kansas, uh, can Laura Kelly hold on in a deep red state? And I think she's the underdog, but I wouldn't count her out. She's very popular. Uh, and mm-hmm. sometimes you see voters being willing to vote for a governor of the opposite party. Hmm. Um, I want to ask you a general question. Now, why was 2018 polling so accurate when the polling in 2016 and 2020 were both putting it charitably way off? Did it have anything to do with Donald Trump's name being actually being on the ballot in 2016 and 2020? Uh, That is a great question, and it is very hard to answer. I would say that part of that was that voter pollsters were not doing a good job of differentiating college-educated and non-college-educated white voters. And Mm -hmm. since non-college-educated white voters started going so hard for Trump, and turn out at way above normal numbers, they missed 2016. And then it went way more extreme in 2020. That didn't happen as much in 2018, so I think that's part of it. Um, it's 
hard to have confidence that we're not going to have the same thing in, in, in 2022. It's kind of an open question, right? Like I thought by 2020 that pollsters were going to do a better job of uh, correcting those mistakes just purely for their profit margin, because you're going to get a lot more money as a pollster if you have a record of calling it right. I was stunned to see it be dramatically worse in 2020. Uh, so I think it's fair going into 2022 to say that the most likely outcome is that they're underestimating Republicans by a little bit, but it's entirely feasible that that won't be the case. Democrats will match their polling or even outperform it. All right. I want to ask you one final question uh, because, um, well, I'm very interested in your, your, your answer to this, and I know our listeners are. But you tweeted that we should pay attention to, and I quote you here, decades of electoral history and not the last election. Why is that? Yeah, that's, uh, I think that's just a problem with human nature that might have served mm-hmm. as well in our earlier days as a species, but doesn't in a world as complex as this. We really tend to just hammer in on what just happened to us you know, like avoid uh-huh. the mushroom that poisons us next time we walk by it, right? But when it comes to mm-hmm. something like this, people are complicated. Politicians react to changes in the environment. Pollsters are going to react to their last misses and do their very best to avoid making the same mistakes. So we can't – I see all the time online people are saying, well, we have to assume it's going to be off by four points again when it comes to the polls. There's no way to know it's going to be like that, let alone the biggest mistake, at least since Truman in polling. Um, And we also don't know Mm -hmm. if the dynamics will be the same. I mean, we're seeing Fetterman and Ryan, for example, really try hard to win white, non-college educated voters more aggressively than most Democrats. So they may or may not succeed, but we have to be ready for the electorate to change. This stuff is never static. Hmm. Excellent answer. Excellent analysis. I appreciate it, Logan. And with that, I'm going to give it back over to David. David? All right. Well, Logan, this has been great having you on. And, of course, we this projection model for your uh, the Senate and the House and the governor's races are going to continue to develop. So if we can get you in before Election Day or if maybe even right after to kind of find out what happened, that'll be great. We can also um, talk about this football model as the season goes on. And, of course, we will be discussing how Marcus Mariota is the clear favorite for comeback player of the year. Um, to, to, you know, kind of piggyback on what Tim was talking about. Um, so, but Logan, we have enjoyed it, and just leave our listeners with this. We've been talking about all this content, but I don't know if the listeners all know how to get it. So give them the address, and then also if you want to tell anywhere else you're posting, writing, social media, anything you want to, you know, share with our listeners. Thank you so much for the opportunity. So uh, it's Race to the WH. That's Race to the WH.com. And what we do basically is predict elections, but the goal is to make it as accessible for anyone that follows politics to know what races are in play. If you come to my site within a few minutes, you'll get a really good idea of the Senate races, governor races, the House races that could decide it all. And uh, I try to go both make it easier at the top end, but also go deeper than anyone else does with the analytics for races you care the most about uh, whenever it's Georgia governor and senator or Pennsylvania senate or whatever. Um, and if you want to find another way, if you just Google 2022 Senate predictions, it should be in the top three. Um, and then on the social media side, uh, I am most active on uh, Twitter, and my um, Twitter account is at LoganR2WH. Awesome. Great having you on the show again, Logan. Hey, great Thanks talking so to you guys. Thanks so much for having Thank me. Thank you, Bye. sir. Yes. That was Logan Phillips, uh, race to the WH, uh, dot com. Be sure to check out what he's had to say about races coming up. Um, well, let's pick up, as I've gotten a little bit of a cough all of a sudden, uh, let's talk about some of these uh, recent election results. And one of the big ones, even though we kind of saw it coming, was in Wyoming. Um, Liz Cheney lost her renomination bid, just to even win the Republican primary, although in Wyoming at this point, winning the, the Republican nomination is akin to winning the election. Uh, Catherine, what were your thoughts on that result, where Harriet Hageman, I guess, um, will be the GOP nominee? Yeah, this is just an example of you know, how important primaries are, and um, you know, I mean, I'm not going to you know, there's been a lot of people raving about how great Liz Cheney is. Uh, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be part of that 
uh, pep rally, but, uh, I mean, she was a, a more reasonable uh, Republican than many, and um, this person who won doesn't sound like she's very reasonable. So, you know, it's just another example of elections have consequences, and primaries are even more uh, volatile than uh, ever, really. Yeah, I would put it this way. Uh, Liz Cheney was really, really good on one really, really important issue in the past right. two years. A lot of the things over time, she's you know where most of the Republican base would love her. That means we probably don't. But on that issue of actually understanding that when you lose, you lose, and you can't overthrow democracy, she was the gold standard, and we'll give her credit on that issue. At least I will all day long. Um, Tim, your thoughts on this race? Well, you know, it, it was inevitable what was going to happen. It's been inevitable for some time, maybe even if the polls were little. I mean, she was running 30 to 40 points down, and she ended up losing a bit over 37 points. But um, as she was making her concession speech, I, I, I thought, uh, you know, there is a person, famous political family, who, who had everything going for her, and on sheer principle, she stood her ground knowing that it would cost her her job, which is the one thing a politician does not want to lose. That's, that's the one thing they fear the most is, is, is losing their job. And yet she, she was willing on principle to do that. And I thought, when I look around the lay of the land and see all these shadowy figures now in politics in, in Washington, and then I see what she was just willing to do, I thought, how refreshing that 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 there is someone still around like that and someone, frankly, a couple of years ago that you would not have expected something like that from, considering she voted like only oh, the 93, 94% of the time with Trump's agenda. Very, very, very conservative. Uh, but still, that she was willing to do this and uh, that the very next day this new organization was announced and, and its sole purpose is to deny Donald Trump uh, hopefully the nomination in 2024 and certainly the White House again and followed by the questions of will she run. You get the feeling that that wasn't really the end for her, that it's the beginning of a new chapter. And we're going to hear a lot from her, don't you think so? I think so, but I'll tell you this. I don't know that her play is running for the GOP nomination. I think her play is running as a third-party candidate, not to win, but just to be a place for where those Republicans that just can't imagine voting for a Democrat but can't imagine voting for Donald Trump can go. And if those voters then have that column and that's 3% of the electorate, um, that safely makes sure Donald Trump doesn't you know, have any chance to win in the presidency again. Um, so I think that's more of her play. Somebody like a Larry Hogan could run for the nomination and give, you know, voters and you know, in that party if it ends because if it ends up being, you know, Donald Trump runs for reelection again, you're not going to see the big field we saw in 2016. It's going to be him and then a person or two that are um, long shots but very different from him. But all the usual suspects that have been defending him that might want to run for president, including the senator in Texas, including the governor of Florida, they're not going to have the courage anyway. Um, so they're going to wait another cycle or so. So um, that um, that's kind of where I'd see her niche being. If she really wants to play spoiler for a good reason and, and keep somebody that's obviously wholly unfit – um, to even have one more hour in the White House, much less another four-year term, that's where she needs to go. Um, well, our hour has run out, and we want to thank again um, Logan Phillips. It's uh, really an excellent tool, and if you talked about how many 
if you heard how many simulations he said he runs on the football games, you can only imagine he's running that many simulations based on polling and other factors on all of these um, political races. So I would um, – the math has been checked and rechecked. Let's just put it that way when you go to race for the WH. Uh, next week on the show, Tim, you lined this up, so I'll let you know our listeners who we haven't lined up for uh, next week's show. Well, we are having um, 14th District um, candidate for the Congress, uh, Marcus Flowers, joining us for the first time. We're uh, very excited about that. Hope everybody will tune in because we certainly would like to get shed of our present member of Congress, would we not, folks? That's great. Yes. Good that's job good. getting him. That- that's kind of a tradition on the show. If I'm not mistaken, we go all the way back till 2008 would have been the first time that the, the race was up with the Cousy Vine. Bud Gammon came on. We've had uh-huh. um, you know the, the gentleman that ran and didn't, couldn't finish the um, timeout. I mean, every time we've – I think we've pretty much always had the um, representative from the Northwest Georgia District as a guest on the show, and so Marcus Flowers will be the next one in that tradition. Um, and so we're looking forward to that. But until next week, it's been the Kudzu Vine. Good night, night, guys. Good night, everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the... Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.